I think one time that was really tough for me is um, I had a really good paying job in the pharmaceutical industry and I was one of the top district managers in the country. Um, and I, you know, it was a French company, so I had great benefits and, um, you know, they basically called me and fired me because they heard I was doing silencers. You know, they had proof I was doing silencers on the weekends. They felt oh, like man. it was a rep- they felt like it was a reputational risk. So I think that, um, you know, it's super tough on my wife. I mean, I think in her mindset, you know, if you want to go do a hobby job and, you know, make some side money uh, on your own, that's fine. But you still need to deliver the bacon on the, you know, the main job. I think my lawyer did a good job of telling me that, you know, you have to focus forward and this is only going to happen again. So you have to really decide, are you going to do pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, or are you going to do, you know, silencers? And you have to make that decision because, you know, because I called him and said, hey, I, I think they're going to fire me, man. He's like, they're a French company based in New Jersey. They've already fired you. They just haven't told you. <laughs> <laughs> he was totally he was totally right. <laughs> yeah, they knew it. What's up everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Mountain Tough Podcast. I'm Dustin Diefenderfer, founder and CEO of Mountain Tough. Thanks so much for coming back, listening to these episodes week after week. We love seeing you guys diving into this content. It is our goal to bring you inspiring, inspirational, encouraging guests week after week to help you shape your life, transform your life, inspire you so that you can live that abundant life that Mountain Tough is all about. If you're brand new and you haven't done so already, it does mean a ton to us if you can take a second and leave a review or ranking for this show on the podcast store of your choice. Those mean a ton to us and they help get these episodes out to more people. So the algorithm boosts the shows that have more rankings and reviews. So if you could take a second to do that, if you like this episode, please let us know. We love seeing those reviews come through. We love reading those comments. So if you haven't done so already, that would mean a ton. There's a lot going on at Mountain Tough here in mid-December. We are ramping up for the new programs that will be released Jan 1. Right after Christmas, you're going to see a lot of teasers for the new programs for 2024, early 2024. We spent a lot of time on these, so you're going to see new minimal gear programming, new elite level programming. You'll see a new nutrition program that is phenomenal, and you're going to see a new strength program all coming out. So watch for those teasers. Watch for more details on those programs. Secondly, There is the What's Your Mountain campaign going on right now. What's Your Mountain has been inspirational. What that is, is we are getting video content from the Mountain Tough community explaining the mountains they're using Mountain Tough for to conquer in their life. So mountains are both figurative and literal. So a lot of people are training for the backcountry, but a lot of people are using Mountain Tough to fight different mountains in their life, such as anxiety, depression, alcoholism, and we are taking those stories and we're going to select a winner from those stories and we're going to fly that winner out to the Bozeman lab to spend a few days with the Mountain Tough team and it's going to be all for Tough Fest 2024, our huge event. We're going to fly someone out, all expenses paid, based on that What's Your Mountain story. So all you need to do for that is share your story using hashtag What's your MTN? We're watching out for those stories. We're resharing them. And that's how we're going to select our winner. So if you haven't submitted your story yet, please do so. That's how we're picking a winner. 
to fly out to the Bozeman Lab for Tough Fest 2024. Lastly, there is a different campaign going on right now with Mountain Ops that you're not going to want to miss. We spent some time with Mountain Ops this year creating a limited edition Mountain Tough Lemon Lime flavor of their Hydrate product. Hydrate is an awesome electrolyte hydration product. It's not a pre-workout. It's not a post-workout. So you can use this thing all the time to stay hydrated. We've been using it in the lab. It tastes great. It's going to leave you feeling a lot better getting that hydration up. And the Mountain Tough Lemon Lime flavor flavor is phenomenal. And when they launched that product, they launched it with an odd ad hunt. So you're going to get the chance to hunt with a person from the Mountain Tough team and the Mountain Ops team. So they're picking two winners for that hunt, an odd ad hunt in conjunction with the Mount Tough Lemon Lime Hydrate Flavor. All you need to do to be eligible for that win is to either be an active Mountain Tough subscriber. So if you're not active right now, make sure you start that free trial at for a chance to be on that odd ad hunt. You can also be entered by purchasing a product from the Mountain Ops website. That's going to get you some entries and some bonus entries as well. Now, shifting gears into today's episode. Today's episode is with Brandon Maddox. Brandon is the CEO and founder of Silencer Central. Now, this episode is very inspirational from the entrepreneurship side of the game. So he started Silencer Central in 2005, and it's been an uphill battle getting Silencer Central to where it is today. They're a phenomenal company. They have a phenomenal process a phenomenal team. If you've ever worked with them, it's one of the best customer service operations out there. And they've changed American culture around suppressors. They've changed American culture around the system you can use to get your suppressor on your rifle. They made it simple. They've streamlined it. I did it last year at Western Hunt Expo with Silencer Central. And now I have my suppressors on my rifles. I was intimidated for a long time. Brandon walks us through what that system looks like. He also spends a lot of time on entrepreneurship. So if you're, an, if you're a young entrepreneur with an idea and you need to get motivated to get that company off the ground to chase that dream, you're not going to want to miss this episode. So stand by with my conversation with Brandon. Are you doing any sort of training any sort of physical training right now are you doing any sort of physical stuff to get ready for hunts in the gym or outside of the gym yeah yes sir what are you doing so i go four days a week um i hired a personal trainer in january and um i was very candid with him when i started that i had zero experience literally zero like none um and my goal was to honestly just get in shape it wasn't necessarily a you know a weight loss goal but um, it's definitely helped. It's mm-hmm. helped a lot of things. I'm super glad I did it. I, I would say that going to Mayo is what prompted me to do it. You know, I went to do one of their executive physicals and just to have an hour and a half of the provider to kind of tell me that, um, you know, you're kind of on that slope where you can go in the right direction or you can go in the wrong direction. It's kind of in your hands to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And how old are you this year? Uh, 51. Okay. And I'm, so when I- yeah. So when I first started, I was 245 pounds in January. So now I'm down to 205. Dang. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it was embarrassing. It's more, it's more like an executive type gym. So there's a lot of people in there that, you know, I probably know socially or personally. And for them to see me in there where I absolutely knew nothing, like, I mean, I could probably do a push up and set up, not correctly, but I, that's the only thing I really understood. Had no idea what, you know, kettlebell was or kettlebell or all these other things. But no, it's been very helpful. I would say that um, my goal really was to build my self esteem so that I felt like I was in good shape and not tiring out while I was hunting and also just, you know, personally as well, hanging out with the kids and feel like I'm in shape because my kids are in really good shape. And what side effects have you noticed from that loss of 40 pounds? Yeah, good questions. You know, one thing I was hunting recently, I do find I get a little colder. I used to have a little more insulation. I wasn't expecting that. Um, so a couple of things, I only drink water now, so I don't drink anything but water. So I've noticed that, you know, I travel a lot. My eyes used to always get dry. Now I don't have that problem at all. Hmm. Um, I, I don't get tired when I walk at all. Um, I've had to buy all new belts, all new um, pants. Um, I would say, you know, like uh, probably my favorite thing is just, you know, my, my kids are very competitive in sports. So to be able to take pictures with them and see that I'm like a completely different person, just to be able to look at it and actually say, gosh, I'm glad I'm that person than what I was, you know, a year ago was that probably is, the main, main thing. Yeah. That is amazing. Congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, my goal, I, I told the guy at Mayo, I said, when I come back in January, I'll be at 200. So I've got about five pounds to shave off between now and then. So that's, that's the goal. That's where I've been, you know, sort of focused. So have you found it that it's making you more productive and focused at work? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I should have mentioned that. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I felt like, you know, uh, late afternoon, you start getting tired, you start losing energy and the, you know, you would usually use caffeine. And one reason why I went to just water is I felt like I had a better control of my body. Like I could determine, am I, um, do I have a lot of energy because I just drank a lot of caffeine or do I have a lot of energy because I have a lot of energy? So that's why I just wiped out everything. Like I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink caffeine. I just drink water. So then I always know where my body's at, but no, I have a whole lot more energy. I, I would feel that the 45 minutes I put in working out, I gain at least two hours an actual, you know, better, more efficient at working, taking on more stuff to try to chisel away at. Um, yeah, much more productive. That's impressive and, and inspirational because you are in your your 50s and a, you're running a, a larger company. I'm assuming your day-to-day schedule is insane, I guess, in terms of time management. So to, to make that happen and stick to it, that's a it is job hard, well done. I, you know, it's funny because at Mayo, they did say it would be near impossible with as much travel as I do. But, you know, I have, I have found I'm very rigid. So, A, I'm also fiscally conservative. So if I paid for it, I pay her, you know, up front every month and that makes me go. And also uh, we put them on schedules. So it just, it's happening. Everything's scheduled around it. Awesome. Nice work, Brandon. Yeah. And, and, and you started Silencer Central in 2005. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. And how did that whole thing start? What was the, the original couple of years look like? That's a good question. So, um, you know, I started out as South Dakota Silencer and it was just really focused on South Dakota and, um, you know, really, I would say, um, you know, part of it was I had a bad experience buying one locally. And I thought, gosh, I want to, you know, I love these things and I want to make it easy for myself. And my father-in-law had a federal farms license and I saw the benefits of him having one. So I thought I'm going to get a federal farms license. Then I'm going to get the silencers myself. So it was really honestly 100% sort of personal when I first started. But the licenses are fairly expensive. So it came, I came to the conclusion I got to sell a few to make this work. 
And then, uh, so in the beginning, it was mostly just working shows, but, you know, I'd done sales after I finished pharmacy school, I'd done pharmaceutical sales and I, I really enjoyed that. So it was great to go to a gun show where me growing up in the South and going into a gun show in the Midwest where I didn't talk like anyone, I didn't look like anyone. Most people were collectors, typically older. And to see how people just almost magnetized towards the table to learn more about suppressors, there was just this huge curiosity that I was like, gosh, that's definitely a gap I can fill, you know, just I've only been studying it for a little while, the few I've owned, and I know more than everyone in the room. So that's what sort of took it off. It just, you know, when you're an instant expert and everyone's coming to you for information, it, it makes you, it forces yourself to even get better and learn more and double down. And yeah, um, the passion just caught on. I mean, we just, you know, continue to sell. And most of the dealers at the shows love me because I'm not competing with them. I was selling something they weren't. And as the dealers started buying them, they started referring people to me at the shows. So yeah, it started out pretty simple. Honestly, I sometimes kid, I say it was a tax write-off because I had a really good paying job. So I was dumping a lot of money into a business that I wasn't <laughs> making anything. So for a couple of years, I was writing off a lot. Uh, that was an excuse I told my wife that look at all the money we're writing off. I'm spending all this money to build a business and it's writing off our income. We're not having to pay as much taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a top entrepreneurship question that you see almost every time you get into entrepreneurship conversations is what what would be your advice for most young entrepreneurs do you do you start your big idea on the side yeah totally i yeah totally i i you know and it and maybe i was at um like an unfair advantage being a pharmacist because i always had in my head like if something happened and went sideways i could always go back and practice pharmacy but um yeah, I would definitely start on the side. I mean, so the other insight I've learned over the years is, you know, you always hear the stat of like 80% of all businesses fail and it just, it kind of creates this negative personification. Um, but if you read the books and they say, if you run and manage a successful business for someone else, that number flips, you have an 85% chance of success. So mm. the, the the question really is, how can I go work for someone else and, and use their money to help them grow a good business and learn from them and learn from that experience and then implement it on my own? And I would say really, that's exactly what I did. That's interesting because you were just leveraging all your pharmacy skills. Yeah, I worked as a pharmaceutical sales rep. And, you know, the good thing about they sent me to Panama City, Florida, which was a newly created geography. And, uh, you know, my manager was in Jacksonville, Florida, and I might saw him once a year. So really, they gave me kind of an unlimited budget and, hey, go figure it out. And, you know, within a year and a half, I was the number one sales rep in all the company. It was a huge Glaxo was the largest drug company in the you know, back when I started in 1990. So yeah, basically I had, you know, the resources and the freedom to create a business there. And once it was successful, it kind of gave me enough, um, you know, sort of confidence that when I did see an opportunity, I, I was ready to jump on it. And then when did you go all in? When did it go from South Dakota silencer to something you're ready to, to put a hundred percent effort in? Yeah, it's a good question. So the next one I did was Dakota silencer. And that was because um, up here, the Dakota Territory ran the gun shows. So it was kind of the same crowd worked the gun shows in North Dakota and South Dakota. So I got licensed in South Dakota. And then in North Dakota was second. And then I got a license in Dakota County, Nebraska. So at that point, I said, oh, let's just call it Dakota Silencer. I'm in three states. But I still did it part-time uh, during that time. But it probably wasn't until about 2010, 2011 when I really said, okay, you know, kind of went to my employer and said, um, I'm going to try to work myself out of a job. I'm going to go to part time and then just, you know, find a way to phase it out. Mm -hmm. And then you you kind of felt that proof of concept right away, like the, the country and the market was really looking for what you had to offer. Were, were they yeah, looking? You know, it's, yeah, and it's, it was probably a little different here in the Dakotas, because I would say when I first started selling suppressors, the the, the products that were available were strictly tactical. I would call it, you know, almost um, 
kind of the ex-military or weekend warrior, you know, just, it felt more tactical and almost everyone that bought for me originally was a coyote hunter. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's where I felt like we had a really good niche is we had very quiet products and they're also very light cause they were titanium. And that really resonated well with these. Cause I would see people come to the booth and I could tell they're super interested, but when they would pick it up and it's really heavy and they can, they can read online then it's not as quiet maybe because the goal was durability instead of, you know, being quiet. Um, and then once we were able to find products that we could have made for us that were titanium and lightweight were quiet, then you could just tell there was this demand for it. So, I would say that was the biggest thing, just seeing it work. I mean, the, the biggest mistake that I made is I worked too long in the business instead of on the business. And it took me a while to find a good sales rep. Um, so for years, I was I could sell so many more than anyone else I would hire that it almost felt like I always had to be there. But eventually I found a guy that was um, really good at sales and that gave me a chance to say, okay, he was single, so he didn't mind traveling every weekend. So I let him go to the sales and then I could focus on, hey, how do we get into more states? How do we how do we do every state that touches South Dakota? And then we how do we do our big states like Texas, Florida, Georgia? Um, and then then after it started building, then it's like, okay, gosh, how do we get in every state where they're legal? That's a hard step to take to kind of stepping out of being in the business to working on the business. Oh yeah, it's hard. And I always tell people, I'm very honest that anytime I hire someone, it's, it's, it's very expensive for me because before it was free, I did it. And I just, I, I tell them that not to de devalue what they're adding. It's just like, Hey, it's hard for me because before it was free, I did it. And, um, you know, I realized to expand the business, we have to get more people involved, but just realize this is a big step for me because I'm having to I always call it kind of new money. You know, mm -hmm. it's sort of like I was having to come up. It was a new expense. But, you know, just being honest with them, the goal is you're going to contribute enough to this business to offset what we're paying you. And then the business continues to grow and we can continue to invest in it. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it's changed a, a tremendous amount since then, because how many how many employees are you up to now? You know, I think we have close to probably 145 in our building here in Sioux Falls. Wild. And then, of course, we have locations in 42 states, so we have at least one there. Um, and then we have other employees that are off-site that do, like, our manage our events. We still work close to 200 events a year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're probably, you know, probably close to 300 for sure. That's wild. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a major difference between those early days. Oh, yeah, totally, 100%. And so what happened next after Dakota Silencer? You know, then, um, you know, it's, I would start to go to shows like say in Wisconsin and I could tell people look at me and they would say Dakota silencer. And I spent too much time explaining to them what the name of our business. So that's when I was like, we got to change our business name. And the other insight was that the word Dakota was owned by Dakota arms and Remington had bought them at this point. And so we couldn't trademark Dakota silencer. So we really needed a name that a, we could trademark and B sounded bigger. You know, Dakota just sounds very localized. Worked out great in the beginning because people were like, oh, I don't I don't live there, but I like to go hunt there. You know, those bordering states would come in to hunt. So they were cool with it. But after we went far enough away, you could just tell the name didn't resonate well. So that's when we did a name change and then did a relaunch. Um, <clears throat> I'd say the biggest change for us really was COVID. Just before we were 100% events. That's all we did was events. We kind of had a spoke model where I had store, I had locations all over the states that touched South Dakota. And then we would work kind of a four and a half, five hour radius, the different events. So all sportsman shows, gun shows, um, you know, farm shows. I used to say anything with a man with a wallet, we were there. And, um, then once the events got all canceled, then it was like, okay, how do we pivot? By that point we were in all 42 states. So it made sense to do a direct to consumer model. So that's when we started advertising, you know, all over the country. And a big part of that was that also, when your process was being created to make yeah, it know, streamlined for the customer? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say that was like one of my key insights originally. So when I'm at gun shows and farm shows and sports shows and I talk to people, I can still, I can tell that the biggest issue in their, in their mind is the whole process of buying a silencer. Like if you talk to anyone, like even in the industry and say, Hey, why do you not have a silencer? hundred percent of the time, they'll say the process. So to me, it's like, how do we make the process easier and make sure that the customer is a part of that process and that we're sort of managing it for them. So the first silencer I bought, uh, honestly, it was sort of, they just threw the paperwork at me and said, kind of go figure it out. When you get it figured out, bring it back. And I just realized that's not a good model. Um, you know, it probably worked for some gun stores because if they don't come back, you still got paid, but it just doesn't work for sustainability and, you know, people to continue to buy more and refer their friends. So, um, I, you know, it's, it's funny because I sometimes kid that, you know, we pretty much have all females upstairs that deal with the paperwork. So people question me, like, how how as a guy was I able to, like, sort of button all this down? And I say, I, I think part of it was like the pharmacy brain of, mm-hmm. you know, right product, right bottle, right, cust- you know, right patient, right doctor. Like that whole mental picture is what helped me sort of fine tune the paperwork. But really, the whole goal is just make it easy because um, that was the word of mouth that people said, hey, he makes it super easy. You ought to go talk to him at his booth or give him a call. Um, the goal is to kind of fulfill that. But the good thing is, you know, kind of working for the last, you know, 18 years of how do we make it better each day? It, it It's good because we asked our customers, hey, how can we make this better? And, um, you know, good or bad, I still hear from a lot of these people because I sold to them originally. So they'll email me if they got feedback and it's like, all right, we got to fix this. <laughs> wow. How do we automate this so, so it's not reliable on a person and it's fixed? So, yeah, that's kind of been our mantra is how do we how do we make the process super simple? And I would say the next phase of the business is. How do we fit other manufacturers into our profile? Because right now, a lot of our sales are our own product. And that's not, you know, really that started out because we couldn't find anyone to supply the volume that we needed at the time we needed. We always needed a lot of volume in January, February, March. And um, years ago, you could buy direct from manufacturers and then they phased into wholesalers. And it's just hard to get the kind of product volume we need. Mm -hmm. So that's why we ended up creating our own. And like I said before, just kind of a hunting focus. But now we're visiting with other manufacturers and saying, hey, look how simple our process is. Why don't we work with you and help you fulfill orders? Like maybe you take orders off your website and we'll do the paperwork and we'll ship it to their front door. So we've gotten a lot of traction on that. I think at first they were a little hesitant because they know we have our own internal brand. Um, but I've been very honest that our goal really is to provide this as a service so that we can help everyone in the industry, no matter what they're selling or what they're doing, because we feel like we have a great model in that we're the manufacturer, we're the dealer, and we're the wholesaler. And we've, you know, kind of learned the process inside and out. And that's going to help us execute for them as a manufacturer that we can be their wholesaler and their dealer and sell directly to consumers. That's amazing. That had to be a huge step for you to going to being a supplier to a manufacturer. That's like a whole nother ball game of business, different people, different folks, different systems. Yeah. That had to be a big change. Yeah. And like I said, we've had a lot of traction on it. So I'm excited about it. I mean, I think it's, um, it creates a win-win because, you know, we, we typically feel like we provide a premium service. So we charge MSRP and we let people pay while they wait with no interest or no fees. We give them a free trust. So, you know, people are bought into the process. You know, there's some stores, their goal is kind of a race to the bottom on price. And I think that can upset manufacturers because they feel like it devalues their product. Whereas us, we stay whole. We try to keep it at MSRP as much as we can. So, um, it provides value to them as well, the, the manufacturers. Yeah, and I think it's good for the audience to know that your streamlined process is definitely what got me, and it was an amazing experience. So I've I wanted a suppressor for a long time, and my buddies had them, and my friends had them, and some of them had done it entirely on their own, the paperwork side, and. 
each each year as I saw more and more friends get suppressors and just the how enjoyable it is to be around them shooting. And I have two young daughters now that are getting into hunting. They're right at that hunting age. So seeing them shoot with kids and just the the less noise for kids was a complete game changer. So I knew for multiple years that I needed some suppressors, but I was definitely intimidated by the paperwork and the, the thought of a trust. And um, last year at Western Hunt Expo, we had the Mountain Tough booth there in Salt Lake yeah. City. You guys had your booth there in Salt Lake City. And our chief op- our head of operations kept telling me, he's like, I'm taking you over. You got to get this suppressor <laughs> thing done. And even then I was like, no, nah, it just sounds too complicated. I don't, I don't have time. I'm busy. And yeah. he's like, it's fast. He's like, it's super fast. And I, I still didn't quite believe him. And finally he just grabbed me and he's like, we're going to the booth. And so we went to the silencer central booth uh, last year at Western hunt. And it was like the easiest process ever. The way that that system was designed, like the first person checked to see what rifles I wanted to put suppressors on. Then they knew what product I wanted. Went to the second person. They helped me find the product. Then third person's already running my ID, so the paperwork's ahead of me. And then leaving the show, like I had my two suppressors ordered. And then, you know, throughout those months during the waiting period, you guys are constantly updating me the whole time. So I kind of knew when to expect this thing. The digital paperwork side of the game when I got home through all those ATF documents, a silencer central representative walked me through that whole thing on a phone call. It was like, it was incredibly easy. And when the, the suppressors finally arrived, you're like, wow, that, that really wasn't that bad at all. And I'm so glad I did it. And so definitely props to you and your company that, that process because it is an intimidating process and quite confusing unless you're deep into that stuff. It it was amazing. Good. That's good feedback. No, I appreciate that. That's exciting. So how old are your daughters? So my daughters are 11 and nine. Oh, perfect. That's excellent age for suppressors. I bet they love it. (laughs) Yeah. And are you seeing more and more of that is, is the, is the draw for that, the ear protection and to get kids more involved? 100%. 100%. always say if a guy or gal shows up at the booth with kids and they hunt together, they're 100% going to get a suppressor. You could just, because there's just so many benefits because the recoil reduction is good. I've got a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old and kind of the same thing. That recoil reduction is wonderful. But then um, also just, you know, it enhances the hunt. So plus, you know, everyone can talk. I always say hunting social, you're always typically with someone. So the ability to kind of still communicate is is a huge plus that people sometimes forget about. Yeah, it's amazing how how it sharpens a kid's shooting ability because they're not really scared of that rifle anymore. So they're more yeah. focused on their technique. It's it's wild. Yeah. So I did want to I did want to shift gears, Brandon, a little bit and talk yeah. for a while about. In addition to growing your business and your team, and you guys have done an amazing job. Part of that combination, part of that recipe, it appears has been your ability to work with the federal government and regulations and kind of just dive in headfirst into those conversations, which, which a lot of people shy away from. 
Um, can you kind of walk us through how that started and, and kind of how you handle that side of the business? Yeah, good question. So, um, you know, I would say how I first started is um, when I got my second location in North Dakota, I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't really sure, you know, what I was doing with two different locations. Like, you know, what can be done in South Dakota? What has to be done in North Dakota? You know, what, you know, just that whole process. So I, I called and hired um, like a former ATF executive from the NSSF, so the National Shooting Sports Foundation. And the way that worked is they subsidized a lot of it. Like they paid all the travel and I just had to pay, you know, him to come for two days. And I think he did a really good job explaining to me that, because um, honestly, what I found back then was, and I've said it before, but really everything you read online about class three, you know, 20 years ago was 100% wrong. Like almost everything I read was wrong, not just, you know, partially wrong, but like 100% wrong. Hmm. And the problem with um, the NFA branch, or the, the NFA branch is the ones that are the experts, obviously, on the silencers, but typically most of the interaction you have is going to be with uh, your local ATF. And at the time, you know, we're still based out of St. Paul being in South Dakota and the St. Paul office back then silencers were not lawful in Minnesota. So when you would call it there, they just, I mean, I sense they wanted to help. They just couldn't really help. So by me having that NSSF, uh, send the former ATF executive, he did a really good job, honestly, scaring me that, you know, if you don't really understand your regulations, you're not going to be able to scale your business and you're hmm. going to put yourself at risk. You're going to put your employees at risk. You're going to put your customers at risk. So it's incumbent upon you to figure it out. It's not incumbent upon you asking enough people and let them tell you. It's like you almost have to figure out yourself and then always be checking. So that was a yeah. good, good lesson. And it also helped me go down the path of there was a process I was doing that he said, you really need um, an ATF variance to do this. So the way the variance works is um, you want to do a process that's like outside of what the ATF says you can do if it benefits ATF. And of course, obviously it benefits me or I wouldn't ask. And you submit the paperwork for a variance and you, and a lot of times we have like four or five variances in place now, and most of them are to do things digitally. So, you know, all these codes were written in, you know, the thirties and the sixties, so they don't have any, you know, concept of digital. So typically this guy helped me write up a letter to ATF and asked that we do things a certain way. And then they came back and approved it. And that just started a communication with them because of course they call and say, Hey, you know, how are you doing this? And can you write it up and clarify it? And sometimes it takes a long time, but you know, over the years, I've done so many of these, everything from being one of the original people to do digital storage of the you know paperwork you fill out to completing it digitally, um, to having all these locations. You know, I always say that, you know, Walmart's in 43 states, we're in 42. So we're kind of right behind them. Wow. They're, they're, they're the leaders in state. So, um, no, I, I think that's what started the journey of learning and then just starting interacting with ATF. I typically meet with them three times a year. I try to meet with them at SHOT Show. Then in May, they do a compliance conference with ORCID, which I attend. And then typically we have another meeting that we try to get together. Fortunately enough for us, we were able to host the NFA branch here at Silencer Central recently. About a month ago, they came in and did a full tour, like the chief of the NFA branch, the head legal um, and then all the local leadership all the way from St. Paul, all the way down. So it's great to sort of walk them through our process, show them what's done in Sioux Falls versus what's done at the actual locations. And, um, you know, our building shows really well, very professional. And, you know, I, I think it sort of helped to build additional credibility for us to get the people from DC to come and visit us. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had, I've had acting directors visit here too. Uh, Marvin Richardson, he, he's been here. So we've had, I always say, hey, you're always invited to come whenever you want. I mean, no, they can only come once a year to do like a inspection. But obviously, if it's just a you know a site visit, then we encourage them because we want to have good communication with them. I always say I'd rather find out if we're not doing something right. Let's work together to fix it. Um, you know, I, I 
I don't want to mislead anyone. I've had some tough conversations with them and I've had some <laughs> stressful moments with them and I've had situations where I thought, man, there's no way this ends well. But hmm. typically once we sit down and we talk through it and, um, you know, it, it ends up working out. I think that one thing that's helped me is being on the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation board and um, being in a position politically where I can talk to legislators because at the end of the day, Congress tells them what to do. So, um a lot of times they'll say, hey, we just have to do what the law say. And a lot of times I'm like, well, show me what that law is. And if it's not there, I'm going to kind of question why you're wanting me to do that. But no, it's it's been a healthy relationship. I know that um, I honestly worried in the past that it was going to hurt my um, sales because I feel like a lot of customers in the industry are kind of anti-ATF. Mm -hmm. And I get it. I mean, I feel like I'm a libertarian. I'm kind of against the government, too. But um I realized really quickly one of my friends said, you know, they kind of have a monopoly on interpreting the rules. So it would make sense to try to, you know, figure them out. So that, you know, that's kind of what I've done. It's just, and honestly going to meet with them three times a year. And then I go to every event they have and I'll always sit on the front row and I take a lot of notes and you'd be shocked how few people do. I mean, they did, a, they did a town hall at SHOT Show that um, NFA branch did and they had a huge auditorium. I think there was 10 or 12 people in there. I was just shocked. Wow. Wow. I mean, just so to be able to gain that information, take notes, create a relationship with them, kind of understand what they're thinking. I think it's been beneficial. I mean, like I said, it's give and take. And sometimes I feel like I'm giving more than I'm taking, but um, at least I know where I stand. Yeah. <laughs> I sense there's a mutual respect. I don't sense they try to bulldog me. They they get that I have influence and connections and I'm going to push back and um, they need to, you know, basically have their laws that they can show me and communicate to me as to why they want me to do a certain thing. But no, I think it's been helpful. Again, I think it helps me sleep well, knowing that we're not putting our customers at risk. I'm not putting the employees at risk. And then I feel very solid on the model because you don't want to put money, time, energy, effort behind the model and scale it up and then find out later you're doing something wrong and you can't fix it. Yeah. So it sounds like a big, a big part of that success for you has been knowing the laws just as well as they do. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I sometimes say there's probably, I don't know, three or four people that understand my business from like when someone buys something till it's actually delivered. There's very few people just because our business crosses so many areas. There's certain people that are experts in each section, but it's, I've only probably found three people at ATF that really get it. I mean, I sit down and talk to them I'm like, man, you've really studied my model. You know it as well as I do. <laughs> mm -hmm. And how would you, how would you define the major bottleneck and hold up in America with getting a suppressor just from the aspect of many other countries, you know, you can go like Africa, you can go in and buy one and put it on your rifle that day. Is it in a, in America, what's stopping that from happening mostly? Is it, is it the Hollywood kind of assassin uh, I think stereotype? So. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think the struggle is like, you know, because I have two lobbyists in D.C. and I've asked them, hey, what's the chances of us deregulating these where they're treated like a regular firearm? There's, it's not a public safety issue. Anytime you see one used in a crime, it's always, you know, they made it themselves. They didn't go through the process. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they said it would take six years to pass legislation. You would have to have six years of Republicans in the Senate, the House and the presidency. It would take that long to educate all those legislators just because there is such a negative connotation around them. Um you know, it's interesting because you do travel, like you said, but, you know, some of these some of these countries are flipped. So, like, if you go to true, Africa, true. most places, you know, you can only own one rifle of a certain caliber. So if you have a 308, you can't buy another 308. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just so they've regulated the firearms and made them really hard to get. You have to get a permit, you know, so it's almost the flip. So they make the they make the farms impossible to get, but it's really easy to get the silencer. So here it's not saying farms are easy to get, but it's just flipped where the silencers are the hardest to get. 
um, unfortunately. But, you know, I'm optimistic. I think that as more people buy suppressors, there's about 4 million of them out there in the marketplace or waiting for approval. Once those get out there and people continue to see they're not a public safety issue and they see the benefits of them, I mean, all of those people are either going to have access to elected officials that they can educate or potentially become elected officials themselves. So I think there's upside in the future for it, for sure. Yeah, and I'm guessing you've seen that just with, you probably have some ballpark numbers that you could share in terms of like how many how many suppressors are Americans buying this year versus like 10 years ago when you were in the oh, business? Oh, yeah. Yeah, big difference. So uh, ATF's expecting to do 1.2 million transfers this year. Now, of course, they sometimes, they're sitting about seven months. So some of those were obviously purchased, you know, last year. But mm-hmm. 1.2 million is what they're looking at approving um, and last the year, previous year, I think it was 800,000. So and then if you wow. go back to, like you said, 10 years, you know, it was like hundred thousand or something. It's just 200,000. Just the numbers were nowhere near what they are now. And so culture, the American culture has adopted it as a, a helpful tool for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Um, Brandon, I did want to talk about a different subject. That's really helpful. Understanding your origin story and the regulation story one thing that might be helpful for our audience that I always like hearing your wisdom on is, so when I went through my process, I had to create a trust, which yeah. was quite confusing just because it wasn't confusing. It was just new to me. Um, what's going on with the whole trust side of a silencer? Yeah, good question. So the history on that is um, years ago when I first started, everyone bought them as an individual. And then um, the problem was, you know, sort of pre-Obama, when you bought them as an individual, you had to go get your sheriff to sign off on them. And um, they ended up doing away with that. But um, the theory was that this was created, uh, the whole process to buy the suppressor was created in the 30s. So back then there was really no national FBI background computer database to look you up. They figured your local sheriff would know if you were a felon and you had to get their signature to sign off on it. Well, the problem was there was a lot of states where the sheriffs just said, hey, why would I sign off on this? I'm putting my neck on the line. I'm not getting paid to do it. And I don't, you know, if they live in a big county, like, I don't know these people. I'm not signing off on this. Um, And so really there was no way to buy a silencer because the sheriffs wouldn't sign off on it. So the trust was actually considered um, an entity years ago. And because it was an entity, there was no background check on the person. ATF would just approve the entity to own the silencer. And then the dealer was supposed to do the background check when he came to pick it up. Hmm. Um, The hard part though, is you could have had 20 people on your trust, but they only did a background check on the person that actually picked it up. So Obama felt like that was a loophole that everyone could be on a trust. Everyone could use a silencer. Everyone could possess it. And only one person had a background check. So what they did is then they transitioned and they redefined that trust as an actual person. And then you have to put people on that trust. So, you know, really the benefit in my mind to the trust, and again, we've been doing this a long time. So um, over the years, you have spouses call widows and say, hey, you know, my husband's passed away. What do I do now? And if it's in an individual's name, there's a fair amount of paperwork. Think about the same amount of paperwork that a customer has to complete that buys that we manage for them. Now the widow has got to figure out how to do that paperwork to transfer it to somebody else. Now it's a free transfer if it was in someone else's main, you know, name, mm-hmm. but just to, you know, say they want to transfer it to um, the deceased uh, parent's son, and then they would have to get fingerprints. They have to get a photo. They would have to do all this stuff to transfer it. So we just found that, you know, it put these widows in a difficult situation. So we create our business model where we just basically give everyone a free trust. And the benefit there is the silencer transfers from 
us, the dealer, to that trust. And then um, ATF actually does a background check or FBI does it for ATF on that person. Hmm. Typically, we only put one person on that trust initially so that only one person is vetted. But then once it's approved, um, really a stroke of a pen adds other people to your trust. But the benefit is that, A, you can share it. So um, if you have someone that you want to put on your trust that's 18 years or older, um, which is a nice benefit because you have to be 21 to buy a suppressor. But if you add someone to your trust that's 18, because legally you can own and possess a handgun or a silencer at 18. It's just the dealers can't transfer it unless you're 21. So hmm. um, if you had someone that's 18 or older who want to be on the trust, want to use the silencer when you're not there with them, you can put them on the trust and then they could use that suppressor. So that's a benefit. But the other major benefit really is once you pass away. So in your example, your daughters would have access to it. So they would essentially take possession of it because they're on the trust. Um, once they, you know, become 18, you'd put them on the trust and then they could continue to use the suppressor and they don't have to go through any of that paperwork to transfer it. So wow. again, the benefit of the trust is to be able to transfer it at death, but also to be able to share it while you're alive. That's super helpful, especially when you think about kids and kids getting older and kids going and hunting on their own, where if they're yeah. grabbing your suppressor, cause if, totally. cause right now, if someone, if someone uses your suppressor without them having the stamp or them being on your trust it is it is pretty intense uh charges right it is a felony yeah yeah so they would say that you actually need to like they say that you lose possession of if you can't see the person so if you're in the field hunting with someone you can still see them they don't really feel like you've less you know a lost possession but um yeah so if someone took your suppressor and used your rifle without your permission they could be you know charged with possession of a you know silencer they didn't lawfully obtain so hmm. i you know you don't see anyone probably pressing charges on that too much i mean i've even had them stolen at shows and i've had a hard time getting the feds to press charges because there's some minimum mandatories on those i think it's like 10 years so they hate to give someone 10 years for you know a first offense wow um but of course i feel sure they would if someone was used it in like a nefarious act of some kind for sure yeah that's wild the process is the process is pretty crazy and everything you've learned about it is wild yeah so i i want to talk about that from the mindset and the the mental toughness standpoint so you started in 2005 so you're getting close to being in this specific business for 20 years my guess is you've been through some very challenging times some very difficult times you've probably had some really uh, hard things and some storms thrown your way, both probably at work. And then you're, you're doing all this with the family as well. So the, the, the mindset that's helped you be successful over, over close to 20 years, how would you define kind of what helps you mentally, what keeps you in the game, what keeps you pushing? Cause you've had to push really hard, especially when it comes to regulations that most businesses aren't running into yeah that's a good question um you know i would say part of it is probably just genetic you know wanting to win so sort of that you know fierce competition wanting to win kind of in in all aspects like winning over a person who maybe comes up to the booth and says well i i i shoot deer and i only use three bullets a year why would i need a suppressor and then convincing them and then they come back the next year and go man i love that i wish i'd done this 10 years ago so um you know that that's one thing that pushed me um you know some of the cliches you hear never give up i mean i would say that was big for me i mean i did hit times where i'm like man like i think one time that was really tough for me is um i had a really good paying job in the pharmaceutical industry and i was one of the top district managers in the country um 
and I, you know, it was a French company, so I had great benefits. And, um, you know, they basically called me in and fired me because they heard I was doing silencers. You know, they had proof I was doing silencers on the weekends. They felt oh, like man. it was a rep- they felt like it was a reputational risk. So I think that, um, no, it's super tough on my wife. I mean, I think in her mindset, you know, if you want to go do a hobby job and, you know, make some side money uh, on your own, that's fine. But you still need to deliver the bacon on the, you know, the main job. Mm-hmm. And so it was tough because, um, you know, I realized that there's probably not that many pharmaceutical jobs would open out here in this geography. What's interesting is I did have another job offer within a couple of weeks. And I, I think my lawyer did a good job of telling me that, you know, you have to focus forward and this is only going to happen again. So you have to really decide, are you going to do pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, or are you going to do, you know, silencers? And you have to make that decision because if you um, are going to continue to do silencers, you probably can't go back in the pharmaceutical industry. They're typically hmm. based in the North. You know, cause I called him and said, Hey, I, I think they're going to fire me, man. He's like, they're a French company based in New Jersey. They've already fired you. This haven't told you. <laughs> <laughs> he, was to- he was totally right. <laughs> yeah. They knew it. Crazy. Yeah. So I, I, I think that was a good advice from him that you got to pick one. And I think that was super hard on my wife. I mean, you know, she's seeing me, like I said, it started out as like just kind of a, tax deduction. It wasn't really making that much. If anything, it was just helping us pay less taxes. So um, to have what I would consider a pretty good career, making really good money. And, you know, my second daughter was born and I was able to, you know, have paternity leave, which, you know, a French company offered me to pay me to stay at home for three months. I was like, man, it's like a union job or something. You know? I'm like, <laughs> this is, this is the way to be. Yeah. And then they get fired. I mean, you know, to be like the recognized as the top manager in the whole country and they get fired. It was tough just to but, you know, my wife was pretty hard on me. She's like, you know, my dad owns a pharmacy. You go down there and work with him and try to figure out how to use his computer system. And you're licensed to practice pharmacy. You need to figure it out. So I went and worked for him for a while. And then that's, um, I ended up finding another job in, a, in another uh, pharmacy. And just with the end goal of how do I continue to focus on my, you know, my business and expand it. And then just use this to sort of bring in revenue and then to kind of how to transition it off. Man. I'm trying to think if I did a very good job answering your question on how to stay focused. I would say that um, one thing for me is um, I like to listen to like, um, and it sounds old fashioned, but like I listen to books on tape. Mm-hmm. And when I first got hired in the pharmaceuticals, you got to realize I, the day I finished pharmacy school was on a Sunday. And on Monday, I started training um, at Glaxo Welcome at the time to do pharmaceutical sales. And I had just spent, you know, five years in pharmacy school. So every bit of the training was product training, which didn't really, they didn't really teach me anything. I mean, they gave me the good spins on it, which was good, but they didn't teach me how to sell at all. No sales so I literally, training. Yeah. I literally had to teach myself how to sell, like listening to Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy and some people on tape really helped me learn how to sell and kept me motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, it kept pushing me. And so um, even now I still listen to books on tape and, while I'm driving, just, I think it does a good job keeping me focused. Cause sometimes I almost have to turn it off. Like, like I'm, I feel like I got a parent in the car just beating me up. Like you need to be doing this. And why aren't you doing that? And, you know, it, it does get you focused. Like, okay, Brandon, why are you reading the wall street journal every morning for an hour? You should be reading something that helps you become a better business person, helps you focus, mm-hmm. helps you channel your energy or whatever. So I'd say I've been very, very good on that. Just holding myself accountable to, um, I would also say I'm very focused. Like any downtime I have, I'm trying to focus on, you know, how do I make myself better or how do I move the ball forward? Um, and sometimes I think people see that as rigid, like well, Brandon's not too personal or Brandon doesn't want to be friends with me or Brandon is very um, sort of stingy with his time. But it's really like 100 percent focus for me of how do I move the ball forward? Because most of my life, I've always been working two jobs, a full time job and then also, you know, working on the business. Um, 
I'd say one thing that did help me too is going back to MBA school. I would convince my employer to pay for it, but to be working, you know, what was like 80 hours a week and scale it down to probably 65 and then to go to school full-time as well, uh, really pushed me to help me understand that I could accomplish more than I thought. Cause it, you know, you feel like when you're working 65, 70, 80 hours a week, you're like, wow, there's no way I could do it anymore. And then you throw something on top and you succeed at it. It gives you a lot of confidence. Like, gosh, put in 100, 120 hours a week and I'm actually moving the ball forward and having success. It gives you more confidence. Like I can take on anything. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And it, it sounds like you did a lot of this with raising children at the same time. And some of those children were probably small as you were going through yeah. those hours. How, how have you, how have you balanced the family side of, of things? You know, it's hard because I do travel a lot, but one thing I've been very good at is just put on my calendar any events they have. So I've got one that's, you know, really into volleyball and singing, and I've got one that's um, really into track and cross country. So just really putting it on my calendar and then kind of building my schedule around that so that they feel like they're the focus. You know, and for years, um, when I had a day job, I would take them to school every morning. So I would let my wife go to the hospital and she would go to work early. And then I would take the kids to school and get to spend that time with them, kind of drive them to school. And then also I'd pick them up from school as well. So my wife could continue to work at the hospital. So, um, yeah, it was tough. That is tough. Yeah. And then related to that, I think like with entrepreneurship and, and growing a company, oftentimes you'll hear, you know, the, the, the hardest part of business is the people. And that's been definitely accurate for me. Like the, the, the hardest part, the, you know, the most difficult events are those like HR related type situations that, that all founders are going to run into. Has that yeah. been, has that been accurate for you? And have you found anything helpful in that regard? Yeah, hundred percent. So, um, you know, of course I'm very driven for success and perfection and I get it. It's tough. Um, but when I was in corporate America, I felt like that, you know, when you're at a company with a hundred or 150,000 employees, the, the chance to manage someone out is almost impossible. I mean, it, it, it just, it almost became a deterrent. Like you felt like you could just tell everyone on the teams, like, all right, when are we going to move this person to something else or out of here? Cause it's really hurting everyone. And I, and I told myself if I ever owned my own business that I was not going to let that be the case. And so that's, that, that, that's hard too, though. Cause if you, if you have to let someone go um, and they don't feel like maybe they had a chance. Maybe they, it's, you, you could tell as a skill they weren't going to be able to fill it. You know, it creates, it could create negativity with the rest of the team, which mm -hmm. is tough because, yep. you know, to succeed, you got to have people to trust you. And if they think, Hey, you know, I might be the next or in their head, they're wondering, you know, it, it makes it hard. I'll tell you one thing interesting that I would have never guessed. And I still find it so perplexing. So I could think of four employees that have worked for me that at the time they were working for me, I honestly thought if they ever leave this business, it will, will fail. Like we can't survive without them. And honestly, the business would grow and change so much that sometimes within six months of me mentally saying that, the reverse was true. If we don't get rid of this person, then they're going to actually tank the business. Hmm. And that, and it's hard to think that that's even possible, but you know, just examples of like people would manage everything and they were great at it. But then when the business got so big, they couldn't, things started falling apart and they were unwilling to sort of task things out to other people. They still wanted to own everything, even though they weren't able to accomplish it all. It's just like, okay, well, this, this can't continue. So yeah, I would definitely say the, um, people stuff is tough. I mean, also, um, you know, I've trusted people that I thought would do great. They, they came across great. And then the next thing I know that, 
you know, we're running at a deficit and they're blowing money left and right. And they're not looking at, okay, how does this money actually create an investment to help us grow? So mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, and I would say probably one of my weaknesses on the finance side, because in the past we pretty much, I financed everything myself. So the, the benchmark for me was look at the bank account. We got money. Okay. We must be doing well. We don't <laughs> I better figure something out. Um, but you know, as you get bigger, you got like a finance department and some of those areas. And that's, I would say it's not a hat I've worn. And that's been a weakness of mine in the past of, okay, I've got to become more aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had my auditors, we have to, you know, we borrowed some money to have like a, a revolving credit with a bank. And so we have to have an audit done every year. And you know, I got a call one day from our auditors and they just said, Hey, you know, you have a person on your team that's just not competent and it, and there's really, you know, you're too small of an organization to like move them to somewhere else in that department. You're going to have to bring in a third party to process the data you're submitting to us. And it was a big eye opener for me because I honestly just am not involved enough to realize that that was even an issue. But after hearing that, we resolved it. Um, I, w- I would say, so I'll, I'll tell you an interesting insight I learned. So I was at a presentation at SHOT Show. And there was a guy that had a highly successful gun store shooting range and I think it was Oklahoma. And he goes around now and coaches um, stores to help them get better. And I went up to him afterwards and I asked him, I was like, what one thing has surprised you or what one thing um, have you seen that just you would have never guessed was the issue? And he said, almost 100 percent of the time when I identify the issue that's keeping the business from being successful, the owner knows it and they're not willing to do anything about it. Hmm. That's and so it reminds accurate. me. Yeah. It reminds me of Earl Nightingale. Cause one of his books, he talked about that. And he's like, you know, I used to eat at this restaurant every morning and I loved it. And it was sort of a social thing when he retired and the cook came up to him and said, Hey, you're this prominent businessman. You probably know a lot of things. What can we do differently? And he started telling him, well, you ought to cook this and you ought to serve that. You ought to do this a little differently. And he said, well, the cook will never go for that and just walked away. So I would say that my take home is a lot of times we know what's creating the issue and what's keeping us from being successful. It is so hard to take action on that because you might have a personal relationship with that person or you feel like that you hired them and you owe them or so I would say just force yourself to make tough decisions. I mean, if you know something's messing up your business and is not a good fit or your business is outgrowing them or they're not a fit for the culture look in the mirror and say, you know what, I, I, I got, give me the power to go make, get, make this situation go away. Like yeah. let, help me, help me figure out a way to fix it. And I would say that that's the biggest thing that my banker would say I'm really good at. Um, and I would hear, you know, even my staff, a guy who's been here the longest, I talked about the sales guy I hired that was able to kind of take my place because he's really good. I, I heard one day someone said something was going wrong and he's like, you know what, I've been here around, I've been around here long enough to know that it won't be wrong. It won't be a problem for very long. Mr. Maddox will find a way to, to fix it. So I would say that's the biggest advice is be honest with yourself. Cause it sounds like consultants, when they come in, they help you identify a problem. You already know you have, you just weren't willing to address. So a lot of times it's just leaning in and doing what you know needs to be done, even though it's not easy. Man, that's powerful. And so accurate. Like in my experience, every time something is going wonky with the business you know exactly what it is and what's causing it but oh, it's yeah. it's that fear of it's it's usually the fear of having the hard discussion which usually isn't that bad once you have it but a lot of times for me it's that fear of what everyone else is going to think and kind totally. of like uh that balance of like being a nice guy and, and keeping the peace but yeah it, it always bites me every single time no, it's hard. I mean, I can remember one of the ones I had was I had a sales guy who was like my top sales guy, a different guy. 
Um, he would work a lot of shows and, you know, he ended up stealing money. So I'm like, okay, it's February. I've got, you know, probably another six to eight weeks left of the show season. And he's working a lot of these shows. I got no one to cover them. I'm spread thin, but I got to let him go. I can't let someone continue to steal money. And after I've addressed it, still, the you know, the, the cash register comes up short on cash. So um, mm. I just had to make a tough decision and it wasn't easy. And I think everyone thought, wow, why would he ever do that? And of course they didn't know the details, but um, yeah, there's a lot of situations like that. Like I said, you'll have someone who might be like really perfect for the business at the stage it's in. And then when the business grows, that person doesn't grow with it or they don't have the skills. And it's an unfortunate situation because you feel like, well, I hired them. I needed them. You feel, you feel disloyal or you feel like you're being dishonest. But I just tell myself that the perfect job for them is out there somewhere. They, you know, and it's, I got to help them find it because this is not the right one here. Yep. Yeah. I've definitely been through the same thing. It's really interesting. What, what would you tell a, a young, with all your experience now, Brandon, what would you tell the young entrepreneurs out there, especially the ones that already have like the idea and maybe, maybe they're doing it a little bit on the side, like you were like part-time yeah. evenings and weekends. What do you tell those people now? Yeah, I, I would say like the other part is just it's it is hard to have the confidence to like double down on an idea. Um, you know, one of the speakers that at one point I hired as like an executive coach and I listen to a lot, read his books is Brian Tracy. And he always says almost every person has a million dollar idea every week, but they just don't implement. They don't execute. They don't. Um, I think one piece of advice he gave me that was helpful is um, he told me, go create an LLC put on your business card that you're the CEO and president of that. And then you have your LLC set up. So when you do find a business, you're ready to execute just like that. And it, it worked for me. I, awesome. I created a business card. It said, be Maddox Enterprises, LLC, you know, Brandon Maddox, CEO and founder. And someone asked, what do you do? And well, what do you need? We could do sales, we do marketing, you know, I, you know, it just, you just kind of, awesome. and then, and then you get to the point where a situation does come where you're like, wow, this is a good business idea. Gosh, I've already got my LLC set up man, this is perfect. I'll just get some new business cards and say, you know, South Dakota silencer and we'll, we'll run with it. You know, it's a parent company is BMATIX Enterprises and I've already got an EIN number and I'm already paying taxes. So <laughs> little, little things like that. It, it was a self-confidence of having a business card saying I'm the president, CEO and founder, even though I wasn't doing anything. You're already the CEO. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then to also kind of already have everything set up. So you have one less obstacle in front of you so that when you do see an opportunity, you're more apt to jump on it. Um, so in studying people that have success, what I've learned too is typically people um, maybe have 18 different adventures they started before they actually hit the right one. And, it, and it's not saying, what I would say is you learned in all of those 18 to get what you needed to be successful in the last. So the question you have to ask yourself is, how quickly can I get through these 18 so I can find the right one that works? Because that's how you're learning and that's how you're adjusting. And that's how you're getting better. So yep. the goal is just start and maybe even admit to yourself, you know what, this is probably not going to work, but I'm going to learn so much. The next one might. And then if the next one doesn't work, say, you know what, I'm going to learn enough so that the next one maybe will work. And then you're able to switch and change and maneuver. And I just, they always say, if you have momentum and you're moving forward, it's easy to turn lighter, right or left. And if you're, you know, completely stagnant, you aren't moving at all. You have too much inertia to actually move. So, so yeah, true. I would think get out and hustle. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And just the, there's no failure. If you're just learning from every single mistake you, you make, it's just learn, adapt, learn, adapt, learn, adapt. I mean, that's oh. been, that's been huge for us at Mountain Tough. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I, they always use Edison as an example, but 
Yeah. I mean, the more you, the, the more you fail, the closer you are getting to be successful. So if you're not even in the game and not failing yet, then you're, you're, you're already behind. Mm-hmm. So it's how to, how to force yourself again to have the self-confidence to say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to have a day job and then try this on the side and see what I can do. That's awesome. Well, Brandon, I do want to be respectful of your time. We are getting close to the the top of the hour and I know you have an extremely busy schedule and as we wrap up, I did, I want to put you on the spot for one thing. I didn't prep you for this, but I think it's going to be fine. Okay. Uh, Fair enough. This episode will air while the silencer central buy one, get one sale is still happening. Can you let folks know what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, typically not every year, but in the past we've done like a buy one, get one free. So we're doing that, you know, when this will actually, um, air, and the benefit of buy one, get one free is obviously, um, you know, people typically will get a 30 cal suppressor and then we also offer, you know, a 22 one free. And we find that that's kind of the one people, you know, say, Hey, I probably want a 30 cause then I could use it on everything. I could use the 30 on my six, five, my seven MM, you know, my two, two, three. And then if I have a rimfire, I can use it on my handgun or long gun. So you kind of have a lot of things covered. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good way to get into the game. Like I said, we let people pay while they wait. So someone could put like 200 bucks down. We don't charge any interest or any fees, but, um, we, it's the right time of the year too. We see more search traffic around suppressors. You know, you think people would buy them in the summers. So they could use them when they hunt in the winter, but our, you know, our brains just don't think that way. They think about why they're hunting, what they need to hunt next year. So <laughs> um, I'd say go ahead and jump in and get it. You know, you can buy it online. You can call us. It's just silencercentral.com. Um, but no, we'd love to, you know, add more people to the mix. And we find once they end up getting one, uh, honestly, about 60% of our businesses repeat. So once people get one, they typically want another one. So yeah. it's uh, <laughs> and I always tell people if you haven't shot a suppressed 22, especially with your kids, it oh, is yeah. like the coolest thing ever. Totally, like, totally, totally, totally. Yeah. So have you had any experience um, hunting with one yet? Cause every time I have someone that's hunted with one, they're like, wow, you can't believe it. You know, like I still hear the shot, but it just doesn't seem to impact the animal the same way. Yep. Yeah, for sure. We, we did a youth African hunt this year. That was a, a mountain tough customer that built a, school in south africa to teach kids about hunting and hunting in africa and they were all suppressed over there and it is it's amazing too to how it changes the the hunting perspective in terms of like after the shot the game the game isn't like scattering out of the country like a non-suppressed rifle which actually which in my mind made it much more safer and ethical and professional because then you get more visibility on the situation right after the shot. You know exactly where you hit that animal because you're not yep. flinching off that rifle. Like the benefits are are so numerous. It's wild. Yeah, you can probably hear the impact better too, right? Because my yep. tracker would always say, wow, that was a solid hit. They could just hear the hit because it's not, you know, it's not impacted by the blast. It's not covered up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Well, Brandon, thanks so much for your time. I'm sure I appreciate. Thanks for thinking of us. I'm honored to be a part of your podcast and I appreciate the opportunity and love to come back whenever you need me. If you have a different topic, you think I can help you with. Awesome. And thank you for that. We're, we're proud of you. I mean, you've, you've changed a a culture, you've changed uh, some regulation, you've impacted some regulation that's made, made this easier for, for many, many folks. And I know it wasn't easy. I know you've been through some hard things, but I'm proud of you for for your perseverance, perseverance and uh, it's amazing what you've accomplished. All right. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah, thanks, Tessa. 
Man, thanks for listening, Mountain Tough. That was an encouraging conversation with Brandon. If you are an entrepreneur or if you're thinking about being one, that should give you some fuel to get going. My favorite part of that conversation was actually there towards the end of the episode. He hit the nail on the head related to a few things I've been through. So he talks about just getting in there and making those hard decisions. As a leader, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, that is not easy, and it always bites you uh, when you delay it. So he he really kind of nailed that for me. He talks about when you know there's a conversation you need to have when there's when you know there's a person that needs to move on. You gotta you gotta tackle those situations right away, and it is scary. But the longer you wait, the worse it's gonna get. That was really, really inspirational to me. I hope it was for you. Um, What a great company and a great system and a great process. They have done a lot. Before we close out today, I want you guys to hear the story, the What's Your Mount story that was submitted by Thomas O'Donnell. So Thomas wrote in and says, Recently, you had sent a note requesting information about what mountain I am training for. And it got me thinking, about why I'm doing this and how I slide in and out of forceful motivation. So I wanted to thank you for the gentle nudge. A bit of background context. I am not a hunter. I'm not a mountain person. I'm a flatlander from Minnesota. I am 76 years old, so I'm not exactly in your prime demographic. I discovered you because of GORUCK, and I immediately joined. Well, not immediately, I took two days of watching the channel. I have thoroughly enjoyed the discovery of how deep and wide the program goes. Because I'm a bit older than most, I've had some disposable income and I've spent it happily on a bunch of wasted stuff. But also, a weight gym, kettlebells, sandbags, cardio equipment, and rucking stuff. And your site brings it all together, in addition to the mental toughness recovery, mobility, all of it. So despite not being in the prime demographic, I am a delighted user. But with all of that, what jumped out to me was the idea of what mountain have I actually assembled to conquer with all of this stuff? What am I moving toward to at my advanced age? Or am I just working out as a kind of nice hobby I can brag about to others? I'm re- it reminded me of what the Formula One driver once said, do not go to the gym in body alone. Thank you, Mountain Tough, from Thomas O'Donnell. Thomas, thanks for that story. That is inspirational that you are still training, training hard at 76 years old and continuing to train that mental side of the game. We love seeing these stories come in. We love seeing the What's Your Mountain stories come in. Share those with us. That is a, how we're picking a winner out to the Bozeman Lab for Tough Fest 2024. And we love how they inspire others in the community. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for listening to today's episode, everyone, with Brandon. Love you guys, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>